Hello friends, welcome back to the Spiritual Nomad Podcast, and today I have Fran Pratt, the litanist, on the podcast. And I'm really excited for this episode. We had a really great conversation uh, just about life, about contemplative practices uh, inside the church, outside the church. We talk about, you know, developing spiritual practices and meditation practices uh, at really boring and mundane jobs and all sorts of stuff we cover in this episode. And so uh, because it's such a great episode, I'm going to keep it really brief here. But I did want to plug Fran's book called Call and Response litanies for congregational prayer you can find her book on amazon and even if you aren't in a church if you're not responsible for liturgies at your church or anything like that i highly recommend you still buying this book uh, just for your own personal contemplative and meditation prayer time Um, these are very thoughtful prayers they're really great as mantras and i highly recommend you go on amazon and check that book out call and response litanies for congregational prayer Uh, Lastly, I am doing a book giveaway and I'm going to be picking a winner on Friday, November 15th. So that's coming up really close. Uh, You can go to my website, thespiritualnomad.org and just join the mailing list, join the, or the email list. Where are we at? 1950? Join the email list and uh, that will enter you in to win a book of your choice. Whatever book that's been on your reading list that you've been wanting to get, I will get that for you if you are the winner. And the reason I would love to have you on the email list is I have some really exciting stuff happening in 2020, and I'm going to let my email friends know first uh, at the end of this month about what I have going on. So join that email list. I would love to have you there. I have some more stuff, newsletter stuff coming out too, in addition to what I'm launching, and uh, really excited about all of that. So thespiritualnomad.org, and you can enter to win there. So I'm going to quit my blabbering here, and we're going to get on to the episode with Fran Pratt, the litanist. Well, everyone, we have a spectacular guest on the show today. Um, I'm really excited. I've been thinking about doing this episode for a little while, and um, I'm excited that Fran finally, um, well, not finally, I guess I finally, (laughs) not putting that on her by any means, I finally worked up the courage to, to mention something, to say something, to reach out and invite Fran on the show today. Um, primarily because uh, I was listening to you, Fran, on another podcast. Um, and I was just hearing your story and hearing so much of myself in that. And yeah. really that, that gave me the, the courage, I guess you could say, to really uh, reach out to just share for our listeners the, the similarities, I think, in some way, but more so just like the way that I think is so unique in you that you were able to just continue following um, what I believe God was was putting on your heart and even a really amazing craft that I believe God has given you for just so many people to engage God in prayer in a way that uh, for, if I could speak for both of us, for our history, um, you know, maybe prayer in a different way. So um, I don't know about for you, uh, Fran, but for me, just prayer, uh, that was essentially, um, it was all free, like free form, whatever the Holy Spirit was doing uh-huh. in that moment, you're just guessing, you're just doing your best to recite that last like systematic theology book that you thumbed through and opened <laughs> half of it, you know, because apparently God responds to, to that sort of thing. And, um, you know, you're just praying 
uh, just hopefully whatever the spirit gives you. And what I love about the work that you're doing now and, um, you know, we'll, we'll certainly uh, get to a lot of this through your story, but the work that you're doing now, it's very methodical. It's very God given. It's very contemplative um, and meditative. And so I just, I love your work that you do. Thanks. Being a litanist. And um, I'm excited. I'm excited to jump in. So uh, for some of your story, I want to talk about- Can we pause just for one second? Because I think that's so interesting. I think it's interesting just to mention in in the context of this conversation that in the church cultures that I grew up in, in the religious and faith culture- yeah. Um, it was sort of implied, never really stated, but implied that the best kind of prayer is extemporaneous prayer. Right. And so, and, and that, that is sort of manifests as just asking for stuff. Yes. <laughs> as like, it's all, it's all quote, I'm using air quotes. It's intercessory. Or it's, you know, God, we want you to do this. We want you to intervene on this or give us this. And um, I just really push back on that notion now. I really push back on that notion. And the way that I even began to start there was I had a desk job in, uh, I lived in Iowa City, Iowa, and I had a desk job. This was in like maybe... 04 to 09. And so I did, I sat at my desk doing my computer work and I had a little yellow iPod that I had the Psalms and Proverbs on. Mm -hmm. And I listened to those, I mean, for hours on end as I like entered data into a computer, you know? (laughs) And, and so for days and days and weeks and really for, for five years, I regularly listened just, they were on in the background sort of behind my my consciousness, the Psalms and Proverbs. And if you start to listen to the Psalms and, and the Proverbs, that's not what they're doing at all. <laughs> like, right. they're doing some of that, like asking for God stuff, but it's much more formational. So um, I, I just thought it was interesting that you started with that idea of, well, what is, what is prayer? Because that's, an, that's a question yeah. that's full circle for me. I love that. Yeah. And, and please, certainly, um, I have a tendency to just kind of ramble as all good charismatic preachers still are recovering from. So <laughs> you have to forgive me. So uh, I love that. And I love that you even just brought up that you were sitting in a desk job. And because for me, I moved to San Diego in 2016. And I had been completely groomed to be a, a pastor and um, to take over what was my dad's church. And so I moved to San Diego and quickly learned that I needed to figure out how to make some money. And after I learned that, you know, doing motorcycle sales, as fun as it was, 10 hour work days at a dealership was not that fun. Uh, and for my Enneagram seven self, I got very bored pretty quick. Mm. <laughs> so I found myself in a, um, in a place where I was humbled and I had to get a, essentially like a, a very simple customer service job that was a cube job. But that is where my contemplative prayer and my meditation really, really started to come into a, a true formation. Um, so I, I just think it's interesting that even the origins of the work that you're doing now harkens back to a time that seemed very and was probably very monotonous and very mm-hmm. stale and stagnant. And for, I don't know about for you, but for me, like, this contemplative 
uh, reflection on, on prayers that wasn't even about asking for things, but a lot of times was just praying for just enough sustenance to like get through this day or this week. Like that was so formative for me. Um, and so I love that you bring that up because a lot of our folks are probably sitting in places similar to that and listening to this. So well, we all, we all end up there at some point or another in life. And we should, because I think it's a necessary part of our journey to be in a place where, where that would, for whatever reason, what, regardless of what it looks like, looks, looks or feels like wilderness yeah. And all of these other distractions are gone and, and we have to find some nourishment, some nourishment that, that is real and that is, that can sustain us yeah. through that. So I don't necessarily think that my, my desk job was, was a wilderness, but in some ways it sure, it for sure was. Yeah. And I listened to so many Psalms during that time that the Psalms became sustenance for me later because mm. then they were ingrained in my in my psyche and in my consciousness, like the rhythms of the psalmic rhythms mm. go and, and the psalmic postures. Like, um, you know, if you read the Psalms and the Proverbs, I mean, there, there's lament, there's grief, there's also joy and exaltation and praise, but then there's, you know, des- utter desperation and desolation. Yes. And so we, we, we learn to exhibit all these, this whole, um, this whole spectrum of postures uh, and and I think that's something that is sorely, sorely lacking in church yes. culture today, particularly in evangelical culture. Hundred percent. And it seems to me that there, if there's any sort of, of pain or lament or frustration or, or anything like that, it's escaped at all costs as fast as possible. And the prayers only come, you know, uh, to get us to some other place. And so yeah. for me, in my you know journey, uh, you know a lot of uh, Eastern thinkers and, and, you know, like Taoism has been so crucial for me in understanding that all of the, and I see that in my own tradition. What am I even talking about? I mean, that's exactly what you're saying is that all of this is making up the whole completion of what my meditations and prayers should be. It's, it's all of these things collectively making, you know, this, this experience and, and in, in all of these aspects, no matter where it's at, you know? Which is what, what I admire, some, or one thing that I admire so much about Taoism and about Buddhism, that its capacity to include suffering in the human experience. And yes. that, that capacity is in Christianity, yes. but it wasn't taught to me in the context in which I grew up. I had to go back and learn it later when I um, was exposed to a more liturgical faith and a more contemplative faith. So Where were you? So- in that, where, where was some of the shift that you began to explore some of that? Where was the, the moment where you began to see some of that shift in, in yourself, in your own life? Like what season was that in? Yeah, well, it was in a season of suffering. <laughs> yeah. It was in a season of loneliness and loss. And um, my spouse and I had lived in the Midwest for uh, like seven years. Mm. And or, or six, and and then suddenly, I at at the time I had this um, ministry. I was a worship pastor and a worship leader. I was writing music. I was you know very involved in uh, 
a community that was close knit and very authentic. And we were able, able to be vulnerable with one another. And that was the first time that I had been exposed to that sort of culture where somebody might like let down their facade for half a second. Mm. And, uh, circumstances conspired to where we had to leave that town and move somewhere else. It was job, you know, just logistics of life, job issues, that kind of thing. And so we found ourselves um, in a season of just kind of lostness. Mm. And at the end of that, we, we moved to California. We moved to San Francisco. And at the time I was pregnant with my older, my older daughter. And I wasn't going to get a job because I wanted, I knew I wanted to stay home with my baby for a while. And so I was, you know, pregnant, new city, don't know a soul. <laughs> um, don't, I, I don't know. I'm totally depressed because I've been, it, been it, like which this. Which is way hard, not to interrupt, but it, that's way harder than what most people realize. I mean, you know, we, we changed cities too. When my son was only six, my daughter was two. So, I mean, just to bring a little context, I mean, and affirmation, like that's really really hard probably one of the yes. hardest things i mean going from a, a a very deep sense of community to a sense of like i don't know i don't know anybody yeah 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 like um and then i also felt like i had had a calling and lost it mm. so so i'm in i'm in this season of grief and this season of i like to call it shadow where we have to explore the shadow yes um and we find ourselves living a half a mile away from city church in San Francisco. And I was basically telling Jordan, like, that's as far as I'm going to walk with this belly. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going any farther. And then I have to walk home up the hill. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so city church it is. <laughs> it's a half a mile away. Um, and that was where I was first exposed to liturgy. I had never been, I had only existed in either a fundamentalist or semi-progressive and evangelical contexts before mm-hmm. and uh liturgy came to me and i mean i think it was like a life raft mm. for me to be exposed to a form of prayer and a form of communal work that was not ex- extemporaneous that paid attention to beauty that was intentional and contemplative and formational and that made um was very careful to include all those postures all those that spectrum of postures of human experience from grief and lament all the way to joy and everything in between um well it was just so nourishing and life-giving for me i'd never i'd never seen that kind of thing so as i once we left San Francisco and we left city church and I was back in a context that was more similar to my previous one, more of a, an evangelical denomination that's not progressive, but it's not fundamentalist either. Mm. What's a good word for that? I don't know. Oh, we're, <laughs> I'm still working on that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to just, de- how to describe that. Semi, semi-progressive. Time of change. So we're, you know, in 20 years, we'll have a lot of this stuff figured yeah, out. Yeah. We'll have some language we're to doing. put around. Yeah. yeah. We say that at, at my church, I'm a, I'm a pastor at a church here where I live um, in Texas. 
and we're like, we don't know what to call ourselves because nothing like this has ever existed before. We have no language to with which to describe yeah. ourselves. It's just this conundrum. What a great time, but also like super frustrating whenever you're trying to like do Instagram stuff. Right, <laughs> when, like, when yeah. you're trying to make a, like an ad for, right. or, or, or a tagline on your website. Like, we, we don't know what we are. We're still working it out, but we know the communion table is open to every single person who walks in the door. Yes. <laughs> that's what yes. we know. And that's so, okay. Yeah. I, you are not part of the disciples of Christ. I, I'm remembering you said that now because that, that is the disciples of Christ thing is, is everybody mm -hmm. is welcome. At, and that is the center of our gathering, not the worship or teaching or anything else. Although we still kind of make those things a big deal still on paper, disciples of Christ makes it possible for every single person to come regardless. And, um, so you're at a place now. Um, yeah, sorry. I totally cut you off. Okay. <laughs> well, just going back to, um, yeah. So arriving in Austin, back in Austin, back yes. in the, mm, I mean, Austin's, Austin's a progressive city, but it's in a, uh, you know, more conservative state. Mm -hmm. And, um, so here I am and I'm back to leading worship you know, with a rock band with like a drum kit and bass player and, you know, I'm playing my guitar and uh, leading my three fast songs and two slow songs every <laughs> Sunday. But then I'm coming home after that because I'm so longing for the nourishment of the liturgy and the contemplative uh, practice that I had learned previously that I was just doing it on my own. Mm. So that's kind of where I began to dig in to contemplative faith yeah and to develop some more spiritual practice because the only spiritual practice that had been um presented to me was well the idea of prayer but then this idea of devotions yeah. okay well are you you got to read your bible every day and right. you got to do that or else you're a heathen Mm -hmm. And you're gonna, you know, fall into sin if you don't. And okay, well, maybe that's true, but that's not the only spiritual practice that exists out there. <laughs> and also, not everybody's wired for that sort of thing. So that's when I became a meditator. <laughs> yeah, so I'm curious. So you were exposed to in San Francisco, like corporately, a lot of these uh, new spiritual practices. You move to Austin. And now you're at a place where you're having to do these by yourself mm -hmm. and exploring something that is maybe still new ish to you. What were some of the things that you began to do? Like when you were just being your own hermit, if you will, you know, mm -hmm. like what were, what was, what were the practices? Well, yep. Well, a lot of it had to do with um, exposing myself to more, just more literature, more reading more widely. So I read Phyllis Tickle, which mm. I'd had a little bit of exposure to in Iowa city. And, um, I read, I began to read Father Rohr and I began to read some Taoist text and yes. I began to read some Hindu text and some Buddhist text. And, um, I decided that learning to meditate, uh, I had some, again, again, a period of suffering with my, uh, my family, my extended family experienced some suffering and some, um, some hard stuff happened. And, you know, I had to learn to cope. You know, we have to, we have to find ways to cope with, with the tension and the duality of the world. Like we, 
we have suffering and then we have joy. And so how do we merge those into a whole? And for me, meditation came at just the right moment and it is the only way I survived a really, really freaking hard year. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I learned the value and, and I, and I began to explore, well, what are, what do Christian mystics say about this type of practice? But then, cause I mean, I knew that, that Buddhists were and yogis were <laughs> encouraging meditation, but I had never met any, any Christians who were really. Yeah. It's interesting. Even whenever I began to share about my own like journey, exploring meditation, cause you know, meditation came to me in one of the hardest seasons of my life. And, and I don't know how I would have made it out without it. And I don't know that I would have still been a, uh, well, maybe not, who knows, but connected to God, like the divine in the real true spiritual way. Like, I don't know what that would have been like if somebody would just said, a, you know, oh, well, it's the already and the not yet brother. And you know, it's like, <laughs> and I'm like, dude, <laughs> I, I would not have, have been able to do that. And so it's interesting um, as I shared my journey and story and contemplative prayer and, and same like, so Richard Rohr, you know, father Rohr, I, I bought a, um, one of the most pivotal books for me was the naked now. <laughs> Mine too. Probably really? one of the most pivotal books of my life. Yeah. Was the naked now. Yeah. I, I, that was the first I've been rereading it here in the last few months. Really? Dang. It's, it's just as good the second time around. <laughs> Isn't it? I, I, about a year ago, I had to pick it up again because I was like, ah, oh, like, you know, I, I could feel there was some things shifting just in my life again. And I'm like, I need, it's, it's that book for me. When I feel like the tide is shifting, that's the book that I have to just begin to read again. Like, it's just, it's so then, did you then follow it up with Tolle? Uh, yeah. So I actually, it's funny enough. I was just like preaching Eckhart to my wife last night uh, to like read him. And she's like, well, which book do you have that you can let me read? And I'm like, well, I don't have any, but <laughs> so uh, <laughs> time to remedy that. Time I have, that. I have, uh, I've, I've watched him extensively on YouTube. Um, that's my good millennial answer for you. <laughs> yeah. So his book, The Power of Now, um, was my follow up to The Naked Now, and and it's funny because Tolly's not explicitly a Christian. He's not not a right. Christian, but he's right. um, he's not you know proselytizing Christianity. Right. <laughs> but he, they're saying, he's saying so many similar things to yes. what the Christ is saying in the scriptures and to what Father Roar is saying and to what the Christian mystics are saying. And so it's just very, it's just very interesting. Yeah. Um, but for sure, those were two really important books for me. And I find myself now, several years later, I find myself to be a magnet for people who, who don't really know how to articulate it, but they think there's more to spirituality than church. Mm. Yes. And somehow they find themselves, you know, they find their way into my DMs yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason, or, you know, <laughs> like at conferences <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> these people who, who are like, church doesn't connect for me anymore. I don't know really why we're singing these songs. Um, this whole idea of like, sh you know, s singing th this happy, happy, joy, joy, and then 
you know, sitting, sitting through this whole, this, this, what feels for a minute to many of us like a spectacle. Yeah. Uh, I, I find myself, I find, I find myself having conversations with them yeah. and I tell them, I mean, I, I'm finding that the thing that the, the best thing I can say is you're right. Mm. You're right. Your gut, your gut that is speaking to you and saying, I think there's gotta be more to spirituality than this. I think there's gotta be more to faith than this. And I say, I think you're right. Yeah. Go read Father Roars the Make It Now. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and what you can learn, what it's possible to learn is that you don't need for your church service to fill your well up because you can do that on your own in your own contemplative or slash spiritual practice. Yeah. Because you already have access to a well and then there's not so much pressure and you don't feel as annoyed by all the things in the church service that bother you. Right. So, <laughs> so I just, it's, it's an interesting conversation. I find myself having a lot here lately, just in the last couple of years of these people who are searching for more and I'm one of them. I mean, I'm here, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing now because I am one of those people who is, has always been like, there has got to be more. There's got to be more than um, blessing the food and reading the Bible and um, keeping out the gays. And, yeah. you know, there, there's got to be more to faith and spirituality than this. It's got to be, there's to be more meaning. And it, it, yeah. guess what there is? There's, there's tons of meaning to be found and tons of meaning to be had. And um, you, you, can, you can go and search for it and find it. And you can go in search for of, ex, of an experience with the divine and find it. Yeah. As so. easy as the breath that's in your lungs right now. I'm, like that's the tool. Like, yeah. That's I mean, and we sort of snicker when we, when we say that we sort of laugh, right. but I know that there, that at various points in my life, there has been, there has been such, such doubt, which is good. I think I, I view d- doubt in a very positive light. I don't yes. say that as a diss, not in, not at all, but such despair and loneliness and questioning and is this shit even real and what are we doing here? And I, so I have a great deal of compassion and I just, I just say as a person who's, you know, done at least a little work, I'm, I'm only 37. So I've done as much work as I can <laughs> up till now. Um, ask me when I'm 80 and I'll tell you something different maybe. <laughs> I love that. And so but there is, there is, there's more to it. There's more to the spiritual life. And so whenever you were bringing this to your people in, in Austin, some people around you, I'm just curious, like how that was received. Cause for me, like I was saying, whenever I was sharing with people who were Christians or whatever, in like early iterations of this podcast, like I, I, you know, and people that have listened to this, you know, are going to think I'm a broken record, but I said, you know, some, some things that weren't, um, a shock to anybody who really knew me, but those tuning in, especially those in, you know, where I moved from, they're like, wait a second, this guy is, he's backslidden and he's doing, you know, whatever. He's on a slippery slope and everything. And I say, well, slippery slopes are a whole lot of fun. You know, <laughs> you ever seen somebody sledding without a smile on their face? So, uh, you know, like I've shared with them this and I'm like, okay, I don't know what is so off-putting about that I have just taken time to let thoughts pass through my mind and think about the breath that's in me. You know, it's like, 
how is that like evil, like weird Eastern sort of things? And I've like denied my faith because I found meditation, you know, it's like very, very unique. Yeah. Um, so have you had any of that? Like from, from, cause I know that you were, like you said, you were in more of a, um, uh, you know, kind of a progressive ish on some pl- planes, you know, but then also yeah, progressive on women, not progressive on LGBT. Right. I a yeah. plus issues. So I'm, that part part way there. <laughs> Did you get a lot of backlash then from some of those people through your journey and how people know you now? Like, I mean, cause I'm sure you're, you're, you know, online or whatever. Do you, do you get a lot of people that have questioned your journey or that, I mean, not that it really matters, I guess, but I mean, for a lot of people, they don't get vocal or be honest about who they are and what they're going through just simply cause they're, they're fearful of what, what their their tribe or the people that have previously given them an acceptance, maybe not providing that anymore. You know, like, have you been through some of that through this experience? I for sure have. And, and certainly it was very, very painful to leave the church that I had invested five years of ministry in. Um, but eventually, and really by the grace of the Christ, mm. realized that it was no longer serving either me or them for me to remain. You know, I I think I was, I was one of those, these people who had sort of, I'm going to call it misguided because I think it is, but I say that with, with some, I guess just leeway and grace for myself and people who experienced this of that, that I could make change from the inside. Mm. I I think that I, I, really thought that I could. I thought that we could coexist. I hoped that we could coexist, even though I was for sure pushing the boundaries of their theology and pushing back on some of the assumptions and some of the practices. I still, I still hoped for quite a long time that, that we could coexist and that we could in the end make one another better and this sounds cynical, but I, I don't think that's true anymore. <laughs> Just, yeah. I, my, my lived experience tells me that it's, that it, it doesn't work out that way. And that there does have to be a separation or a schism. And I, I wish that that weren't true. I wish that that weren't my lived experience. And I hope for the folks who are still, you know, in the trenches of evangelicalism, trying to make that change and push those boundaries. I hope that it works out for them. I'm not saying it's not going to, but I'm telling you that my experience tells me it it's the chances are slim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that all of this, all of this apocalypse. And I use that, I use that word, you know, meaning, um, meaning revealing unfolding that's happening. Just, I mean, got to cut bait sometimes. So, yeah. I mean, it's, the, it's just like to, you know, talk about another pop topic right now, but I mean, it's just like the, the John MacArthur's that think that this is, you know, the end or whatever, you know, because we're allowing women to teach and lead or whatever, which is so bizarre to me that we're still having this conversation in 2019, but uh, you know, like they're thinking the end is coming and the end is near because of that. And I think that 
that is the sign of like a really a true new hope for a new day and age. Right. And so it's like, this is, this is a rebirth of what's happening. Um, and so I think evangelicals at large are, you know, it's really hard to coexist in that space and the natural reaction, I think for someone like me or like you that has said, can we coexist? Can we try to do this together and live in a, a way that is respectful, um, to an extent until you start like, you know, telling Beth Moore to go home. I stopped getting respectful at that point, you know, <laughs> but yeah. uh, it's really hard for me sometimes to, to play nice, I guess you could say, but uh, I try, I'm trying. Um, but like, it's hard to coexist in those spaces. And, and I hate to point the finger and I really, I really don't want to necessarily, but it seems like a lot of my, my people who I ran with in evangelicalism, it makes it hard to run together because of their disposition towards where I'm at. You know, I become like a project to them or they want to see me come back around and have some sort of new conversion experience where I'm like, you know, back doing the same things, you know, that I was doing. And, um, you know, people have a really hard time that I title myself as an ex evangelical pastor, you know, and they're like, because mm-hmm. I, at, at some point, to you, to exactly your point of what you're saying, at some point there had to be like a breaking off of that in order for, for me to have any sort of new freedom and new lived experience. Like there had to be a yeah. removal of it as much as I didn't want that, you know, as much as I, I wanted to try to do something new and coexisting, you know, I, I just got quote like off the books as a vineyard church planter uh, which, you know, you're familiar with the vineyard, you know, but for our listeners, you know, they they ordain women, but then they, you know, think the LGBTQ people are, you know, uh, not welcome as, as they have a weird thing going on right now. And it's only getting weirder. But, um, you know, like, I just got off the books in June for being like a registered church planter, you know, and it's like, it's just through that time of it was, I was so hopeful that we would still be able to do something. And I think, well, you know. it, it becomes for me about solidarity and complicity mm. because, um, okay. How, how can I, how can I claim to be an ally of people who are oppressed and marginalized? If I'm propping up a system that actively oppresses and marginalizes them. Yeah. Well, it's become clear to me that I can't. And that wasn't clear to me for a long time that I didn't see it that way. I w- in fact, I would have argued with you that that wasn't how it was, yeah. but I can see it now. I, I'm, you know, by the grace of God, I'm becoming more conscious yeah. and I can see that now. I can see that, you know, people ask, people ask us at Peace of Christ Church, well, why do you have, why do you have to talk about um, justice so much? Why do you have to talk about racism? Why do you have to say the word patriarchy so much? Why do you have to say, um, why do you have to talk about LGBTQ issues so much? And we say, because we got to be loud. Otherwise, we'll get, so one reason is we'll get lumped in with the people who aren't paying attention to that stuff at all. Right. And the other reason is kids are dying. Yeah. Like, re- like, really, kids are dying for lack of allyship in their churches. Yes. Kids who are queer or trans, they are they're, they're committing suicide at alarming, alarming rates. And it's, it's in part, you know, I've read studies that say if kids have clergy members who accept them 
just as they are. They are such and such a percentage. I can't quote it to you right now. Such and such a percentage less likely to try to commit suicide. Yeah. And so why do we, why are we so loud about this stuff? We're loud because kids are dying. Right. That's why. Right. Wait a second. Your, your church is about unconditional love. Hold on. (laughs) Oh man, we can't be having any of that. There's no tithes behind that. Are you kidding me? Yeah. It's like, yeah. So, so people want to say, so people like to, you know, talking about, um, do, do, do I get backlash? I don't get backlash personally. Most, mostly people, I've just sort of made it clear and people, I guess, leave me alone or don't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> In regard, either way, I don't care which. Um, but we do as a church gets, get some pushback. And I think we're just at the place where like, I'm, I don't know. I don't have time for that bullshit. I'm going to move on. I'm going to like, we're going to do our justice work. We're going to continue to call out racism. We're going to continue to say that black lives matter. We're going to continue to work against um, queer and trans marginalization and oppression in the church. You know, we're just going to, we're just going to do the next right thing and forge ahead Yeah. despite, but, and, and, and we do that because of the inspiration of the Christ himself because we're looking at the scriptures. This is, this is the accusation that we get a lot. Oh, well, you don't have the high value of scripture and (laughs) yeah, we do. (laughs) Right. Right. We're getting all of this right from it. We're getting it from, from the mouth of the Christ himself. Right. But, and and I'll go as far as to say it's because if people could read a few more gospels instead of epistles, they might get a little bit of that. Well, that's annoying too, isn't it? (laughs) All this, all this misinterpretation, which I don't ever want to sound, I don't ever want to sound like I, I, I don't feel like I have a corner on the market of, you know, scriptural interpretation. I'm not like a trained theologian or anything. Um, I'm an in the trench. I'm in a, I'm an in the trenches theologian. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, <laughs> we do, we have to do the work. And this is, this is our vision, our vision for church. Like we're trying to, we're, we're, we live in a suburb of Austin and we have this tiny little church that we pastor, me and two others. I'm the pastor of worship and liturgy. And then we have two other pastors to lead and the pastor of community care. And the three of us are always trying to look at power dynamics. And we're always trying to reimagine, well, how do, what is church today? It's 2019. Nobody cares about church. People have plenty of other social opportunities. What is the, what is the power that that church actually has in the world? And, you know, for us, it is a lot of it is that, especially in the South, it's the voice of the church that has pushed change forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And if the church can come alongside, come alongside of progress and push it and, and, and lend its shoulder to the, to the forward motion, um, then things get done. And that, and, and for us, that's a lot of what we think, you know, we also think that community is important and it's important to not try to do life or faith for that matter in a vacuum. Yeah. And so we're, we're here, we're trying to reimagine church and reclaim a lot of the words and reclaim a yes. lot of the scriptures from those interpretations that yes. have been so harmful to women and to LGBTQ folks and to, um, black, indigenous, and people of color. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. 
I love the reclaiming and that's, that's exactly what we're doing here. And that's what I was, I came out here to church plant, you know, and that's, that's what I was trying to do, but I quickly. It's so funny because people are sending churches are being sent from California to Texas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're coming to evangelize Texas. We're no. like, there's a church on every corner here. <laughs> Right, right. Oh, well, they don't have the right doctrine or theology or whatever. Right. That's so crazy. My question, okay, so I got something else. I'm curious, and um, I was going to ask something else, and this popped in my head too. Did you have like, you had some time off from being on staff at a church when you were in San Francisco, and then eventually you made a decision to do that again, and it sounds to me like it's just because that's what you're passionate about or whatever, but I mean, was there a period of time where you're like, you know... I don't know that I want to take on that. And, and there's a lot of bullshit that you deal with being on staff at a church. And like, did you question that whenever before, like going back on staff at all? Like, I think I was more happy to be back. You that's know, back, awesome. Back there. I, th- I don't think that I was at that point. Um, I, I think I was more relieved to kind of feel like I had a calling again and feel like I had a ministry. I also, I'm, I wasn't um, a paid staff member at that church. Um, I mean, I stayed home. I had another baby after the, that first one. So I have two oh, kids yeah. now and they're seven and nine. And I stayed home with them for a bit while working for that church. Okay. Um, but I, no, no, I was happy. I was, I was relieved to be back in unfamiliar territory but you know the cracks began to show after a while and and the the ways that that i couldn't make the theology work anymore began to reveal themselves Mm. and at the same time the christ himself became more real to me which is why i never threw the whole thing out the door out the window you know because I, I felt um, and still feel that the you know connect, that connection and that realness from the Christ and I've had some really strange and like weird mystical experiences that have kept me going along the way. Oh, me too. <laughs> but uh, I didn't yeah. I didn't throw it out altogether. Even though I have thrown a lot of theology out, I've thrown out a lot of toxic theology. I've I've, you know, I've taken the house down to the studs over the years. I probably started deconstructing in 2002. Wow. Really? Like, oh, sorry. Um, deconstructing in 2002. And uh, it, I mean, it's been a long journey. So uh, there's been a lot of theology come and go for me. Yeah. The first, the first order of business was, well, can Baptists worship with people who aren't Baptists? Mm. And that was kind of the first question that got put to me. Wow. <laughs> you know, Which seems so funny. silly now, but at the time, no, it wasn't silly at all. I'm, I'm laughing, yes. but it's not, it's not silly. And that's my point is that, that we think deconstruction in that term has to be like, you know, all the way over to where you're like on the brink of a universalist, you know? And it's like, you know, for me, that's, that's, that's where I've ended up. But the point is like, <laughs> deconstruction looks a lot like that. Like that was, I mean, even my, my, you know, history with the vineyard, like the whole like empowered evangelicals, it was a deconstruction of is Pentecostalism and evangelicalism mutually exclusive, right? Like it was like a, 
in a form of deconstruction. And so I think for people, it, something tells me that some folks listening to this podcast, like wouldn't even understand those terms that I just used. But the point is, is that like deconstruction can look a lot more subtle and a lot more up the, the river stream, you know, before it goes down into the lake. Right. Like it, I don't, I don't actually like the term deconstruction anymore. And I, I try to avoid it. I used it just now, but I do try to avoid it. I really, I preached a whole sermon on this uh, not too long ago, but I really like the the metaphor of renovation better. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. as though, um, as though I inherited a very old, rambling, sprawling, falling down fixer upper of a house when I inherited my faith. Mm. Okay, so room by room, board by board, wall by wall, I'm in the process of renovating this this fixer upper. And I'm not done yet. I'm not, you know, I don't have all the wisdom. I don't have all of the I don't have a corner of the mark on the on the market of prayer or liturgy or spiritual practice or contemplation. But I I prefer the metaphor of renovation because I still need I can recognize that I still need four walls and a roof over my head spiritually. Yeah. Right. Right. So I don't have to deconstruct down to bedrock. Yeah. And a lot of times when people get on the deconstruction kick, they do get down to where they aren't even sleeping in what would even look like a tent anymore. <laughs> metaphorically. Which is I mean, fine. And plenty of people got to do that on their yeah. part of their path. That's fine. I don't, the I don't problem judge is, that at all then they can't find any metaphorically again funding or whatever to start building anything else. Right. There's, and, the raw material is gone. <laughs> right. and, and then they become rained on and begin to deteriorate. And I, I think there is a, a piece about the renovation rather than deconstruction, because it, it can be a very difficult thing to do and sometimes unable to do whenever you bring things down too far you know like it when you deconstruct something so far beyond you know uh even resembling if you're going to use the metaphor of a house it's hard to remember like what walls even look like anymore you know and so keeping that alive and i mean there are plenty of people who have to do that yeah and that do it and don't ever rebuild any kind of a faith paradigm again and that's fine too i don't have a problem with that i i just know that for me I have enough personal experience with the divine that I, that I can't let the, the thing go. Yeah. Yeah. Altogether. Yeah. So. And so for when you were doing the, uh, the contemplative practices, spiritual practices by yourself, you began to slowly, but surely, um, assimilate those into your, your Sunday gatherings, right? How did, how was that? Uh, process where was was your church doing anything like litanies before you were you were over that yes. area if you will so I started working at Peace of Christ Church in 2017 and they had already existed for about five years before that okay so they had some practices and I think they would have been I think they could have described themselves as fairly contemplative okay um, so they they had been on a contemplative had been calling themselves contemplative longer than I had. Um, in fact, I was hired to bring a fresher music and worship scene into what was already there. Cool. Because kind of before, before I came along, 
before I was hired, it was very much a traditional church paradigm, like Mm -hmm. as in a piano and a hymnal kind of a thing. Yeah. And I was hired to bring in more of um, a culture Mm. in terms of an aesthetic culture, uh, quote, worship culture uh, to balance out the doing, thinking, and feeling. Because I think um, Peace of Church was, and still is to some extent, a church that was great at thinking and great at doing but not so much interested in feeling. So here I am. Let's hire an Enneagram four on staff. <laughs> okay. <there it> is. <laughs> Let's all feel some things. Yeah. So, um, so that, that's kind of what my work has been. So, so fun to create like a song repertoire that what, what does a song repertoire for a progressive church even look like? Right. If we've done away, if we're, if we're sort of past this notion that God is, this being in the sky who has a big ego that we need to stroke. Okay. (laughs) We're kind of done with that notion. We don't think that about the divine anymore. (laughs) Well then what does a service even look like? And what songs can we even sing that aren't, you know, look, there's a place for, you know, magnify the Lord, exalt God's name forever. There's a place for that. I'm not, I'm not throwing that out. What about hop on the bus? Do you play hop on the bus? No, I don't. Go ahead. I'm sorry. But anyway, just creating this sort of contemporary, contemplative um, music, culture, liturgy. So yeah, I write liturgy. I do pastoring, um, play music. So on a Sunday morning, um, the you're doing music um, is, and you said, do you have a full band with that now? And now I'm just kind of curious because we're reshaping our experience from the ground up as well we we don't have a a worship leader we have nobody that's championing that right now we're just it's it's a it's a shit show to be completely honest with you and so now i'm just kind of curious what does that look like like what does it look like for people to to have this what sort of music what is the feel Mm -hmm. like is there a way that you can explain that for Yes. So one of our, one of our friends in our church called the, the style that I've just been slowly creating over the past couple of years, he called it contemporary contemplative. Mm. So I think that's a fairly good descriptor, but that doesn't mean not joyful. Okay. So sometimes if we hear the words contemplative, the word contemplative, we think somber and that's not, that's not it. It doesn't mean somber. Right. It does mean that the songs that I choose are very, very intentional, very theologically robust. A lot of songs about justice and peacemaking and reconciliation. A lot of songs about the the community of heaven being here now. Yeah. It's here now. And what what we do is we wake up, we become conscious of it. Yes. We become aware. I love that. So, so, so me, so I scour the ends of the earth for songs. <laughs> That's really what I'm getting at here. Where do you find this? That. Yeah, I'll share my repertoire with you. <laughs> I don't mind. Um, <laughs> someone else may as well benefit from all of the listening that I have done on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> nope. 30 seconds. Nope. Nope. Right. Click. Nope. Um, uh, so, I mean, I am very choosy about that. And also, Try, try to find worship songs without penal substitutionary atonement. I challenge you. That's <laughs> really so hard. 
hard to do. It's really oh hard. Oh my gosh. So hard when, when you way, know that. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> when you try to tell that to, to some of like the worship leaders and you try to explain it to them and then you give them that duty to, to try to find it, they're like, yeah, they come back empty handed and they're like, well, why do we even have to, why is it a problem? Why is it a thing? And I'm like, well, first of all, if you're asking the question, this is going to be a long conversation. Mm-hmm. You're uh, going to have to re- you're gonna need to read some books. Yeah. You're going to need to read liberation theology. You're going to need to read some women's I theology. Say, I, I always say, I emphasize to people, I say, well, penal substitutionary atonement is a theory. It's penal, and then that's usually where I can get a really good read on what somebody's going to do is whenever I throw the word theory at the end, because mm-hmm. it is <laughs> and the look on their face, whenever you say that is telling if they're going to give a shit to look any farther for any songs or just yeah. leave the church. <laughs> well, yeah. here's another curveball. Okay. Try to find songs that don't exclusively regard God as masculine. Right. Try that. Yes. Try finding, I got so frustrated last year. Because I was looking for, I wanted us to sing the Lord's Prayer, mm. Father who art in heaven, blah, 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 in, in our liturgy and had to have that in the repertoire because it's a very important piece of Christian liturgy. Right. But um, I couldn't find one that, that doesn't solely refer to the divine in the masculine. Mm. So I was like, oh, crap, I got to write it, which is <laughs> exactly how I started writing liturgy. I, did, really? I started writing litanies because I wanted my community to be able to, pr- to pray about hard stuff like disasters and wars and stuff. And I couldn't find the liturgy that would work for my particular, you know, non-denominational casual setting. Yeah. I couldn't find it. So I'm like, crap, I got to write it. <laughs> that's, 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 it's like half my life of half my creativity is like, oh, crap, I have to write it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm accepting that now, but yeah, I mean, that's a lot of the story. <laughs> but you, you have a gift for it and you have a knack for it. Oh, and, thanks. and now, now you're seeing all of this from sitting in a cubicle to going to San Francisco to being in the trenches pretty much the whole time. But you know, even now, you know, you're all of that is coming together to create um, even more uh, work for, for people and more opportunity for people to use your work to encounter the divine in a really, really deep way. And well, thank I, you for saying amazing. that. And it is true that it was a gift that was given to me that I sort of realized, oh, actually this um, hits on all of my strengths and interests and yeah. like is becoming a vocation for me um, because, you know, I started off as a musician, but I don't think everybody connects to music. Like, yeah. I hope that people can, and I hope that I choose songs that a wide variety of people are able to connect with, but some people are going to connect more with the spoken word liturgy than they are with the music. And that's just the way it is, I think. Yeah. So then you, for your liturgies, um, you're, you're a litanist. And so you're writing a lot of these. And as we begin to, to wrap up our chat, as people, you know, now they know a little bit about the music, what it, you know, the contemporary uh, contemplative, um, you know, and don't put music at the end cause then you're still going to be CCM. So we're going to have to figure <laughs> something else out for that, but, uh, we'll get there. Uh, so yeah, would you, would you read us one of your, your litanies that you would read in, in a service right now? Would that be something that we could set up for? Is there any other thing that I can do to help maybe set that up for that space too? No, I think I'll just read. I'll, I'll read with the disclaimer though, that the majority of what I write is call and response. 
In fact, that's the title of my book. My book is entitled Call and Response, Litanies for Congregational Prayer. And people can find that? Oh, on Amazon. Great. Um, this litany that I would like to read for you now is not actually in that book, but I just thought it would be fun for your particular ex-evangelical audience. Yeah. Um, this is litany for imagination. And typically if I or anyone in a church reads a litany, it would be like, I read a line and then the congregation reads a line and it's as though we're throwing a ball back and forth together. Mm. But in this case, I'll just read it to you. Thanks for not putting me on the spot. To yeah, <laughs> I'll just read it to you. And also it's, I guess it's helpful to think of this type of liturgy as a prayer, but also as a poem. Mm. So as, as an intercession, but also as a thing of just, just we're, we're trying for beauty here. Yes. So, yeah. Love okay. it. Litany for imagination. God, we are made by you, imagined by you, formed in your image and created by your love. We often forget that we are creatures of imaginative potential of creativity, that our imaginations like yours can be generative and life-giving, useful to your kingdom. We often forget that our assumptions about you are limited by our experience here. But with imagination, we can let go of assuming and move closer to you. We struggle because we only know things that you are like, like water, like bread, like wind, like a parent, like a king. But we know that these are incomplete comparisons. Nothing we know can define you. So we pause now and open our minds to the fullness of God, of which we can contain only a little at a time, a portion that gives us life and makes us hungry and thirsty for more, fueling our imaginations. This is what we ask for, to be able to see past what we can see, feel, taste, touch, and hear with our mortal bodies toward a new horizon, a new reality, a community you are imagining and inviting us to faithfully imagine with you. Amen. Amen. Did you mm. want to, did you hear that ding? Do you want to record that again? No, okay. no, I didn't hear it at all. I'm, I'm okay, good. Here. My computer dinged and I don't know how to make it not ding if I'm trying to hear it through the audio of it. Listen, Sorry I'm here that. in like the fifth dimension of heaven right now. So. Okay, good. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> that was my whole point. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm here. There's so many, there's just so many mantras, I feel like, that could be even pulled from that for people mm. to use. Um, there's so many times you were reading where I was just like, oh, I feel like I could just repeat on that for a while, you know? It's amazing. I love it. It's so... Oh, thanks. Yeah. Fran, thank you so much for, for being a guest. And um, Thanks, Luke. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm excited for all that you're doing. And um, yeah, listener, I encourage you to, to pick up a copy of this. And I would even say even whether or not you're going to actually lead people in litanies or not. But like I just said, I mean, use this as even a mantra book as a prayer book for yourself. And uh, yeah, totally. 
swing online and, and pick it up. Amazon, I, and then you have a website. Well, too. I also have a, I have a website and I have a Patreon, which is where most of my weekly writing goes. I write a new litany or two each week. Usually it goes along with the lectionary reading for the week. Awesome. Um, and that is available at patreon.com slash And my website is just franpratt.com. Awesome. Sounds so good. Be sure to check that out. And um, also let us know what you, you thought about this. Uh, send a comment, direct message. As all you listeners know, I'm on Instagram likely way too much. And uh, send me a DM. We'll connect and let me know how this episode has helped you or uh, has brought anything to the surface that you'd like to, to chat about. I'd love to chat with you. So be sure to subscribe and tune in next time. Thank you, Fran. Thanks.